Welcome and happy Friday. It's February 3rd, 2017, and this is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here in the podcast studio with Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor and a podcast producer, Catherine LaGrave and Meredith Carey, who are both editors for the site. We got Brett on the boards. And we also have, just to prove this is Condé Nast, you may hear music in the background because there's a photo shoot going on next door. There are fans there is music, there are drills, there are all kinds of things because we do it big time. <laughs> so our topic for today is going to be how to get the best airfare every time. And we're not necessarily talking about the cheapest airfare. We're going to start this one with an interview. So Mark, why don't you take it away and let everyone know who you're talking to here? I talked to this fascinating guy who is basically Google's point person for travel. He spends his day kind of steering Google's setup, and everyone, I'm sure, has used Google Flights as a search engine. He helped me sort of think about how to use Google Flights or other search engines and ways of approaching travel booking that maybe you wouldn't instantly think about. So hopefully he'll give us some things to start off with. Thank you for taking the time, Eric. So tell everyone who you are. Eric Zimmerman, Director of Travel. I'm a product manager. So what's the biggest misconception when we're looking for flight prices? Sure. The biggest problem that we see is that people think that if they wait, the price is going to get better. And it certainly happens. And we have a lot of data that we look at that shows that prices do drop, but most of the time they go up. And so my number one tip is if you see somewhere that you'd like to go, the likelihood that it's going to get better is very low. And the likelihood that when it does get better, that you're just there at that magical moment, is also very low, even with all the nice price tracking systems that are out there. In other words, if you see a fare and you consider it kind of bearable, you should grab it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's a psychological challenge for us, right? We say, oh, it's okay. It's five weeks away. The price looks good. And then sometime for some period of time, the price happens to drop. Now, most of the time, the price is going up, but sometimes it drops. And those are the things our brain remembers and then starts feeling like we've made a mistake when the probability that you would have gotten that cheap price is very low. As a travel guru, how can people be less intimidated by flight prices? What are other approaches to sort of get the best value? Sure. So, one of them, which applies to trips where you're going to go to more than one place, one of the most common things you can do there is actually buy multiple tickets. So you can buy a round-trip ticket that is New York, London, Rome, New York, and then buy a separate ticket to connect you between London and Rome. So you would make your first search be New York, London, Rome, New York, and you would buy that as a round trip, even though London and Rome don't have a flight yet. And then you can look up and shop for just a one-way ticket between London and Rome. And oftentimes that will be much cheaper than trying to buy one ticket. And it also gives you a lot more flexibility. So in a trip like that, you could not only fly a one-way on any major network airline, but you could buy a ticket on a low-cost carrier, right? You could buy a ticket on EasyJet or Ryanair or what have you, just to get you between London and Rome. Talking of London, I know the one airport you want to avoid originating in is, is Heathrow because the fees there are astronomical. Are there any other sort of red alert airports around the world that will make travel more expensive because of local fees, taxes, stuff like that? That's a great question. Two pieces. One, Heathrow really stands out. I think if anyone has ever tried to get an award ticket to Heathrow, you can really see just how much more Heathrow costs than the other airports in the area. The second thing 
is that a lot of times people don't understand where an airport is and how far away it is from where they're going. I think in Europe, it's much more understood by people that there are a lot of these secondary airports that are far away and people have some sense of that. But for people in the U.S., particularly if they're traveling to a place like in Europe like that, they don't know. And they end up very far away and they spend either a lot of time, a lot of money or both getting in and out of these seemingly cheaper airports. So where are you going next and where is on your bucket list? Well, uh, probably Montana. I have children. They would love to see bison, but they also are obsessed with Harry Potter right now. So they would also like to go to London. And uh, I think Montana is going to win this round. Oh, I mean, I know London prices are the lowest they've been, I think, in like 20 years. <laughs> I, I, I know. I've been watching both. I get notifications and those notifications are fun to watch. But I'm now not, of course, doing precisely what I should be doing, which is buying those tickets. It's six months away, so... So even, even you make mistakes, even a travel guru makes mistakes. I've certainly been guilty of it, but I, I will say that since looking at the data more, I've gotten a lot better. And, and, and I agree with you that if I'm getting to in that one to three month range and I haven't bought a ticket, I start feeling some pressure because I know the prices are only going to go up. Thanks so much, Eric. There were some really great tips there. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. So he obviously talked about something that was really interesting, which is the idea of buying a round-trip ticket with an open leg. So the example he used, you know, where you go to London and then you come back from Rome, let's say you're coming from New York. I've never really thought of that before. What's the story behind that? So it's a complicated reason, but it's essentially, say you're flying on United from Newark or from Houston or from one of its hubs. United will have its own planes running to London and to Fiumicino in Rome. It will not have United-branded planes flying between London and Rome. It will probably have to subcontract to Lufthansa or one of the other Star Alliance carriers. When it subcontracts, it has to pass along the extra fee to you because Mm. it's charged something, Mm. then it has to charge you something. So what pushes your flight price up is that little leg between London and Rome because it's not on United's own aircraft. So what you want to do is book two flights that are on United's own aircraft and then work out what the cheapest thing to do to connect them. What is the best way for people, for readers and listeners, to figure out what those paths are? I mean, it's going to be obvious that they're not going to have a United flight between two cities in Europe. How can they figure out what's the best city to go to in Europe from the United States? It's more about what your nearest airport's dominant carrier is. Because remember, if they're operating on their own metal, it's like buying direct from Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's just sells own branded stuff. That's why it's cheaper. It doesn't sell Heinz ketchup, where Heinz has to make a profit and Trader Joe's has to. It sells TJ's ketchup, which is ketchup. You look at your big carrier, you know, at LAX, it's American. At Miami, it's American. You want to pick that carrier and then look at what alliance is that carrier Mm. in. Because they're going to have much better deals when they're already linked with another airline. So take American. American's part of one world. One world's dominant airlines are American Airlines, British Airways, and Iberia. So that means London, or the UK, Spain, 
Those are probably going to be busy routes where American will operate its own metal or have a code share, which means it's much, much more affordable. Right. And then you do those two center holidays. You have a, a few days in London, a few days in Madrid, and then you pick one of the convenient carriers at whatever time you feel like just to zip down to Spain. You could even stay within the alliance if you want to get miles for it by buying a ticket one way. Direct on from the carrier that yeah. works best from that new European airport that you're at. Yeah, for people who are concerned about the miles. Right. Getting all the miles. But it's just, I found, I thought that was a really interesting point. You can search. I know on Google Flights you can. I think on some of the other, other search engines you can search for not exactly an open jaw, but this weird disjointed ticket. And I would have assumed that would be by far the worst value. Yeah. And I was staggered when Eric explained to me, he's like, no, 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 actually, you're really hacking the way the airlines coordinate. But I also think that if you're someone like me, I enjoy being a little more flexible in my plans when I travel. And so having two destinations and just entrance and exit dates, I have time and flexibility to choose when I decide to end up in Rome, when I decide to leave London, how I'm going to get there, if I even want to take a flight, if I want to take a train. Like you have a lot more flexibility than kind of locking yourself into, okay, I'm going to be in London, but I want to visit this other city, but I've got to get back to London to take a round trip back. It just gives you a little more excitement, And the I same think. is true in Asia. I, I wouldn't necessarily, if you're thinking about flying to Africa and doing multi-centers in Africa, Africa's aviation network is less kind of, you know, thorough. But if you want to get around Asia or get to Europe, both of those as big destinations, this trick is mm -hmm. going to get you much better value. Yeah. I would agree and include South America in that as well. Because there are good carriers moving between the yes, countries and between the capitals. Yeah. yeah. I said this at the beginning, and we kind of talked about it pre-podcast, but we're not talking necessarily about the cheapest flight, right? Because, you know, everybody knows this, but it's worth reiterating. Flight prices vary quite a bit by a number of factors, right? What are some of those factors? One is seasonality, right? What are some of the others? The popularity of the flight itself, the time of day. How much competition there is. I right. mean, remember, if you're flying an unusual route, the airline knows it's us or yeah. nothing. Yeah. Pony up. Right, right, right. I flew to Omaha a couple of months ago, and it was the most expensive flight I probably ever bought. And it was just New York to Omaha, Nebraska, because there aren't that many flights from New York to Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, they got you. If yeah. you've got to go. You've got to go. Right. Yeah. yeah. Time of day, season, holidays. I think those are big ones. Yeah, it is. I mean, remember, until the mid seventies, there were four airline flight prices. There was right. there was day economy, night economy, day business, night business, and then when they deregulated, it became this alphabet soup of flight codes, which are deliberately intended to be opaque. It's like you've got alphabet spaghetti on a plate, and they're just grabbing things and saying, "This is your A code and G," and it is overwhelming because I think we don't want to sort of steer people towards looking for those different price codes because they're just confusing. This is about you need to have your own price sensitivity and we're trying to give you ways to hit that better rather than all the things which I find confusing where travel experts say, log into this and look for an X fare. I don't have time or patience enough to do that, to be honest. I think the research that you can do on your own, though, is looking and just double checking on Google Flights because they have a calendar feature. So you can kind of bop through all of the months and kind of get a sense of how much flights are when you check. And then maybe a week later, double check just so that you know what would be a good deal for you when you go back to actually purchase your flight. You will at least have a little research done and you don't have to find the X fare, but you at least know what a good deal would be. 
And I think price trackers, too. Like, you can set those. So, Mark, you were saying how you don't have time. You can set those. You can set them on Google. You can set them on Kayak on a lot of sites where you just hopper, right? You just plug in your dates and say, I want to go from Miami to London March 12th or whatever. And then I say, this is my price that I want it to hit. And it'll email me and say, here it is. You know, you have however many days until this expires or however many hours is more likely. So that's, I think, a trick for people who don't want to spend a lot of time combing sites, which frankly, a lot of us don't. Are there tools that can give you kind of a year at a glance kind of look to see those seasonal fluctuations in prices? Hopper has done that. And Google Flights has just recently added a feature that when you put a flight tracker on a certain route, it will let you know, like kind of the odds of it going up, the odds of it going down, how recently or far in the distance that will probably happen. So it's not you know, science, it's not set in stone what they, the graph that they give you, but they do suggest the timing for you to purchase the flight. But that isn't something that necessarily works for everyone. And we want to, Eric and I talked about this in another part of the interview, about this awful perpetuating idea that there is some magical moment to buy flights at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday and they're the cheapest. No, 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 no. That could not be less true. What Eric did say to me, and I thought this was quite interesting, about the data through the year. Flights are loaded in about 330 days ahead of travel, sort of 11 months-ish. The minute a flight becomes available, you would assume it would be cheapest. It's not. Because the minute the flight becomes available, the people who are desperate to buy on that date grab it. So often when it's introduced, there's a bit of a price spike. Then, until about six months out, there's not much variation. It'll kind of sit, it'll go down, and it will sit. At six months, it will start moving up and down, up and down, a bit up and down, up and down. And then at three months, it will just start going up. Mm. So there will be flash price cuts, and you know people like Scott Kaiser are great for that. But in general... Between 10 and 6 months, the price is going to stay the same. And before 3 months, whatever you're looking at is probably reasonable. I have two questions about this. How much of a kind of last-minute hotel tonight fire sale ever happens? I feel like it never happens. Very, 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 very rarely. And when it does happen, it's because an airline has not been able to sell the seats and are trying to put together a full flash sale of all of the seats that are left. But usually still, you're about three months out. It's never like, oh, next week I'm going to fly to London because there's this crazy $100 deal. That does not happen with flights like it does with hotels at all. Right. The other question that I had is... Is there arbitrage that happens? Are there middle market people, you know, like scalpers or whatever, who will go on, who are aware of all this, who are tracking the flights, maybe with software or through some other means, kind of buying them and then waiting for the cycle for it to start to go up, as far as you know? I mean, there used to be bucket shops. I mean, that was what I grew up doing, was going to the back of the newspaper. And I remember sitting on the floor of my apartment when I first moved to New York with the New York Times on a Sunday, looking for the phone numbers to call to check about the prices. No one speculates like that on flights anymore, because it is so transparent, because users can find those prices. Anyone who is price aware will do it themselves. And because of the airline regulations about whose name a ticket was bought in, they can't just buy tickets and then resell them to you because there are fees about reissuing. And I would always say, remember, I always believe when we're talking about value, I try and buy directly from the airline because almost always if you buy from 
some of the resellers, there'll be little small print that means if there's any problem, mm -hmm. you're screwed. Mm -hmm. And you won't make it on the flight and you won't make it where you need to go and there's no flight insurance whatsoever to help you out. Has that ever happened to you? It is not, but it is something I would definitely warn everyone that if you are not comfortable with that possibility, buy directly from an airline because the chance of you not making it, if something were to happen, there's a flight delay that the airline won't voluntarily receipt you on, you are not making it to your destination. I will say if you do buy through one of those third-party sites, the first thing that you can do, because this has happened to me, is to get your confirmation number and then the same day use that confirmation number and contact the airline. I've done that with Lufthansa before and then get an itinerary issued from them. So, you know, if you are someone who is sort of uncomfortable with it, but also realizes you can save $50, $75 sometimes. Which you can. Which you can, and I have. Contact the airline and, you know, use your confirmation number. because The confirmation number comes from the airline, not from the service. So usually they provide two. It depends on the service. It can be, well, I'm not going to call out specific ones, but um, they'll provide you with, like, an itinerary number and then your airline confirmation code. So the itinerary number is normally when you're going to that third-party site and I want to find this itinerary number. It won't work on the actual airline, but you will get like a, an airline confirmation number you should if you don't that's a problem, that's a problem. <laughs> but i do think you know we're talking about value again yeah often a lot of airlines will say you get the best price guarantee from our site or they they will try and encourage you to buy directly from it and i would always say for 50 bucks peace of mind that to me is value and you have 24 hours to change your mind is that true for all airlines for I know it's true for United, but I no domestic airlines. Yes, domestic airlines. You have twenty. I believe hours. I actually believe it's to do with U.S. consumer protection. Yes. So it is. if you are a U.S. consumer who buys a fare in the sitting in the U.S., you have a twenty-four hour cooling off window, even you know, if it's with like British Airways. Well, I just I just bought an, an internal flight in Argentina, and. Although Aerolineas Argentinas is, has a one-hour cancellation window, I got a pop-up thing saying, you know you're in America, you have 24 hours to cancel, you can cancel with no penalty yeah. in 24 hours. But I would still say don't take that for granted. Yeah. Check the fine print. That's important with flying generally. Just look at all the little notes because you don't know what kind of fees are going to be there. You don't know what you're going to get charged if you don't make yourself aware. I think that's a bigger issue with like budget airlines when we're talking about getting the cheapest flight instead of the best deal is that you <laughs> might end up paying just as much or more as you would if you had chosen a more traditional airline. If you take in Absolutely. getting your seat, getting your food, checking your bags, like those fees add up. Majorly. And, and so, this is getting more and more complicated, right? Because right. now we have domestic airlines that are doing basic economy, economy. We've got the wows. You've got the new budget European airlines showing up. So what is the way to navigate this? So I would say, first of all, it's checking the fine print. So this is something called unbundling, right? It's where you're taking a fare and you're taking it apart and you're saying, I'm going to charge you for your bag. I'm going to charge you for your food. And for a lot of people, that's great because they just want the bare bones fare. But really, it, to me, it's sort of a sneaky way to actually increase prices without appearing like you're doing that. I think there's always a catch. So first, before you book that $69 ticket, read the fine print. Because you can add it up and say, okay, a bag is going to cost me $25. A meal, if I want it, is going to cost me $15. A seat assignment is going to cost me $15. All of that adds up, and you might get more legroom and all of those things on a ticket that costs you $5 less. 
I would Which also, has happened to me on Ryanair before. <laughs> I will. I mean, but I would also, I think Eric made another interesting point. One of the best ways of thinking about value for a flight is before you book any flight, just go online and put in the airport code and check where that airport is. Right. Because London Luton isn't in London. London Luton is in Luton, which is as close to London as, you know, I mean, upstate New York is to New York City. Really? It's that far? Oh, it's, I mean, there are buses, but it'll take you an hour and a half, two hours. Or Narita versus Haneda. We've talked about this in the podcast before. Or Ciampino and Fiumicino in Rome. Fiumicino is a much better serviced airport with far more links than Ciampino, which I believe was originally a military base. So there are buses that the low budget carriers have laid on, but they take a long time. And you could take a cab, but it'll be really expensive. So remember, if you want value, sure, you might save 50 bucks flying on a different airline to this airport you've never heard of that they say is Rome Ciampino. But you might end up spending $100 on the taxi you have to take because you land late and the buses have gone to get to your hotel. When actually in Fiumicino, you could have taken the metro for two euros. That's yeah. that's such a good point. If you're flying a budget airline, chances are that that is the case, especially in Europe. Sometimes it happens between cities in the EU or between yeah. versus versus from the United States. But there are even airports in the United States that do that. Like Detroit has two airports. Yeah. Right? Well, no, because it's funny because when I was booking my, I'm going to Argentina in April, and I've never been to Argentina. So I have my internationals booked out of Buenos Aires, but I want to go to Mendoza. And when I looked at the flights, I thought, there's one out of EZE and one out of AEP. Mm, Let me check what those, and and of course, EZE is the big international airport, and AEP is the former airfield Mm. that happens to be very convenient to downtown. But when I connect to my international flights, I don't want to get caught in traffic. I, I want to. So remember, I paid more to fly back into the right airport, and it is. It just. It. It. That's why we want to f- emphasize so much. This isn't about just the cheapest flight. This is about the best value because overall, do you want to spend lots of money on taxis or do you just want to pay it up front? And I think it's kind of goes back to what you talked about in your conversation earlier. It's choosing the airport that's going to be best for you, right? Nearest to public transportation or whatever, and also saying this is going to be my price point. And then set that alert, and when I see it, okay, I'm going to buy it. Because I do that thing sometimes where I'm like, I have to get the cheapest price. Which, in reality, like we talked about, maybe saves me $50. It's sometimes more inconvenient. Whereas what I should be doing is just what he suggested earlier. Like, if I see something that I think is good, just buy it. And I've had that with mistake fares where I see a fare and I'm like, oh, I should really get it. And then I don't. And then I go the next day to buy it. And it's like, you know, $500 more expensive. This is a shout out to my mom who had me buy a flight to Milan. And then the next day, a <laughs> flight, uh, Scott Kai's flight email came through with like $400 off the flight that I had just bought. But I couldn't feel flight regret because I knew that if I, honestly, if I hadn't bought the flight, the flight deal wouldn't have come through. And I, that's just how the world works. And so you have to kind of stick with what works best for you. But we get, I mean, we have a very irrational relationship to numbers. So people talk about a famous 199 round trip deal between New York and LAX. Like there was a, you know, this, wow, this mythical number. That was in 1992. 
And that flight price was during a hardcore price war between a whole load of airlines. But that has now been established as the anchor price for what a deal between New York and LAX is. It's not. You're never going to see that flight in anything other than a mistake fare these days. However, 265 you might get if you plan ahead. But you're still thinking about the 199 So don't get seduced into assuming it can always be cheaper. You do know you have to pay for flight. Like, they're going to charge you something. Do you feel like the low-cost airlines that are coming online these days... Do you feel like they're adjusting people's expectations, making people feel like the right price for a flight to Paris is $69 or whatever? I mean, when I write flight deals, I think, like, is this number like a really sexy flight deal number? Because people 69. don't, well, there you go. <laughs> people don't like buying a flight that doesn't sound Cheap. Like sex? <laughs> no. <laughs> the cheap. mile high club. This is a whole other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but Valentine's I mean, when you Day see podcast. a <laughs> when you see a ninety nine dollar flight, you're like, wow, that's a great deal. That's not a hundred dollars. It's ninety nine dollars. That sounds so much better than paying one hundred and fifteen dollars. When paying for the one hundred and fifteen dollar flight might get you there in more comfort, might actually get you there faster. It might be nonstop. You don't know. You just have to and be honestly, a little Meredith, more flexible. You just said Behavioral economics has a very interesting area of our relationship to numbers. People have tried to work out where this association... You just went very professorial. <laughs> Did I? I'm just I like say. to take a, take a few pens and papers, people, take some notes. But this is, this is about... This is Walmart uses this pricing very well, and it's interesting about how we react to it. There is no proof of where this association comes from, but... Zero at the end of a price tends to denote quality and premiumness. Nordstrom's prices are all whole numbers. Mm. Nine at the end of a price says value because it's just under 99 bucks. Another number at the end of the price, the eight or the seven, makes us think the price has been cut as as low as it can. Right, the odd number. The weird number. It means we think that somehow they've really, really worked hard to get the number. Of course, none of those are all just random choices. So I always think that when you're buying anything, whether a, you know a pair of shoes or a flight, you need to cover up the final digit to almost not be manipulated. So you need to think it's not 265, it, it's two, 260. It's not 268, it's 260. Because we have irrational things where when we see the eight or the seven or the six, we think we're getting a better deal. Do you think that we're going into an era of increased competition internationally for the airlines, or do you feel like we're going into a period where the prices are going to kind of stabilize, go up? What what does it look like right now? It all depends. There's a lot of industry stuff going on in terms of, and especially with the new administration, who knows what their approach will be to some of the protectionism that U.S. carriers, especially Delta, have complained about because they feel that the Middle Eastern carriers are getting unfair subsidies so they can offer cheaper prices. There's a whole load of sort of pram toy throwing them out, you know, playground-itis there. But I do think that the airlines are making money at the moment. Oil is not too expensive. There are more planes on for delivery. Everyone wants in on the U.S., and the U.S. carriers know that. More and more people are getting permission to fly into the U.S. So you are going to get more options. But again, remember, enjoying a flight and getting somewhere pleasantly is down to more than just the cheapest possible price up front. He mentioned during the interview, you guys talked about airline or airport fees. And there's quite a bit of variability there. You mentioned Heathrow as being one of the worst offenders. What are some of the other ones that are pretty high? I'll tell you the country in Europe that actually has some of the best fees is Italy. 
So a lot of the a lot of the airline hackers will say try and originate your flight in Italy because Italy's fees for flights are surprisingly low. I mean, I I would assume I love Italy. I spent a lot of my time there. Your wife is Italian, but. You know, with Italy, I wouldn't. I wouldn't assume Italy would do anything nice for me. But <laughs> the Italian airports, great places. The great places. Are. He interesting. When Eric and I talked about the high fees, he said, you know, Heathrow really stands head and shoulders above everything else. So you sort of want to avoid Heathrow if you can. Is that sort of thing transparent? Like I've never noticed an airline fee, and it probably just because I'm not looking. Is it transparent to the purchaser, to the consumer? If I book a yeah. if I book a, a mileage ticket, economy mileage ticket from New York from JFK, originating in JFK, round trip to Heathrow, my taxes are hundred bucks. If I book that same ticket with the same number of miles originating in Heathrow, the taxes are three hundred and fifty pounds, or about four hundred and fifty bucks. That's incredible. That's a real difference. And, and so I think the question is, where can people look to find these if they're trying to? You will find. Right, exactly. You will find that the the fare will the break breakdown. it down. Yeah. It will say taxes because it will break it now more than ever because the airlines want to prove what you've actually spent on the tickets mm-hmm. and give you your mileage rewards based on that. It will break down and it will say airline fees, carry and post fees, carbon offset fees, whatever. And the British government has. I think they might have to change things because they want to be competitive, but Heathrow has always just ladled on the fees. Those are specific airport fees mm-hmm. because Gatwick doesn't have this reputation, right? It's it's not taxes. Or it's, what are they doing? What What is that money going to? Is it just airport maintenance? Yeah, it's like the landing fees that they charge. I mean, Heathrow, a landing, fees. remember, a landing slot at Heathrow yeah. is worth a weight of gold's weight of gold because it's a hub for Europe. And Heathrow knows that, and it just jacks up the prices. And I think there are actually a lot of airlines. Another reason to read the fine print is when you see a fair sale on an airline, double check and make sure when it says, you know, $100 for a flight, that it means really $100 for a flight and not $100 plus taxes and fees, because there are plenty of airlines who will say, yes, the fare is 30 bucks on this one-way flight. And it's really not 30 bucks, it's more like $100 because the fees and taxes when they all add up are gonna be $100. There is an airline in Scandinavia, oh, Scandinavian Airlines, that had a fair sale where kids flew free, but kids didn't actually fly free. Kids flew for about $50 because those were the fees and taxes for their $0 fare ticket. Can I say something else that I, I really would encourage people not to do? There's a very good way of getting a cheap flight price. You book indirect with carry-on baggage only. You want to go to Chicago, you book to Phoenix via Chicago. Amazing! You just get off the plane and you've you just don't use your the end of your ticket. You are technically violating the terms of carriage there. And although I have not come across it yet, an airline could quite happily turn around and levy the full fare New York Chicago because that's what you took. So there are lots of encouragements to say, oh, book one ways and indirect and you're really hacking the system. No, you're actually cheating. And if people do it too much, the airlines will catch you and they will fine you. Not fine you, but they'll they'll adjust the ticket price. I have friends who didn't realize that you had to bring a carry-on and so they were like, Oh, we'd like our, you know, luggage at the first stop and they said, Nope. <laughs> you have to either find your luggage, you have to come all the way to Boston and get your luggage and then fly back to New York, or you can just wait for us to deliver your luggage from Boston, which will take about five days. And they were leaving in three days, so 
they definitely did not uh, pay attention to the rules of that nifty trick. So they said that when they were checking in or they said that when no, they got they to would, the destination? No, they got to the destination and were like, oh, can we pick up our bags? And they're like, well, you checked all the way through because that was how you bought your ticket. And so they ended up flying to Boston I and was finding I'd... their way to New York. Sad. <laughs> yeah, well, I won't get into it, but I do, dis- <laughs> I do disagree with you in very rare instances. And this is one of them. Um, I have had to do this a few instances. I wouldn't advise doing it all the time, but in my opinion, it's it's sunk cost. I paid for the ticket. It's the same as if I'm going to pay for a university class and not show up. I paid for it. It's my money. But I believe under most terms of carriage, if they catch you not taking the second right. the second leg, they can adjust the price. They can adjust the price, and I, some airlines can also refuse you. What does that mean? I think because I did it with a, an airline that I fly <laughs> often. Oh man, all the secrets are um, coming out now. That they have a right to say, you know, I don't, I, I won't accept you flying on our airline because you've done this. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of thing like a passenger's? <laughs> but bill I of- saved four hundred dollars. So. <laughs> and you can never fly on that airline again. Oh no, I fly <laughs> the airline all the time. I mean, and I kind of knows who that is. <laughs> no, I don't know who it is, and I'm not. I would. I'm not. I wouldn't say. But I'm kind of with you because I feel like. They still got $400 from you, and making the decision to not let you fly with them again, they're getting $0 you, out you of that. You can feel how you want. My point is, you're breaking the rules, and if they catch you, they have the upper hand. You don't have the ability to go, it's a bit unfair. They go, <laughs> that flight should have cost you 500 bucks, not 200 uh, We'll charge the extra 300 to the card on file. No, but I paid the full. Are you talking about? So, okay, tell me. I'm saying, if you say you book, yeah. say you want to go New York, Chicago, uh-huh. and those flight prices are very expensive for whatever reason, and instead you book New York, Chicago, Phoenix, with only the intention of getting off in Chicago. Right. If the airline. Oh, I see. Busts you doing that. And, and, but it's important to note that the flight New York, Chicago, Phoenix is lower in price mm-hmm. than the flight. Which because is why you would do to, it. Right. But yeah. the airline is, is entitled, as far as I understand, the airline is entitled, if you only complete that portion of the journey, they are entitled to adjust the fare to represent the portion you took. That is why I would, if, if not doing it often, right? Because it was like, <laughs> I didn't want to no get caught doing this and making a habit of it. I'm not advising um, it, but this was a last minute instance when I did it recently. But I agree with Mark, terms you, of carriage. I don't agree with Mark on, you know, because Brad, I'm with you. You can do it. It's your money. The, well, the, I mean, the just, hidden city is what it's called, right? Hidden city airfares. Mark's saying not worth the risk, and you're saying, eh, I'm saying, eh, sometimes if you can save a lot of money, but don't do it too often because you will get caught. And this has been something that's come up. You know, there are a few sites actually devoted to this, and this has come up. I think United had a a lawsuit over this because it it has been sort of such a contentious issue. So it's definitely something airlines are looking out for. You know, if I book several flights and I only take... Keep missing the second half. They they do notice. (laughs) They do notice. Yeah. Well, they know it every time, right? It's just whether they choose to sort of follow up on it. Because they know if you get on the plane or not, Yeah. Mm-hmm. right? They're inventorying the whole thing. Right. Or manifest or whatever. Is there such a thing as a passenger's bill of rights for air passengers? The thing what you're looking for is something called interline agreements. And what interline agreements are, they are airline industry speak for love thy neighbor. If American has a canceled flight... 
In order to ease the problems, there should be an interline agreement with other carriers, which means those American passengers get scattered around on other flights to get them to their destination. Famously recently, Delta had a snit fit with with American (laughs) and refused to sign an interline agreement and promptly had two of its biggest sort of computer problems ever and had all its passengers stuck everywhere because Delta won't make nice. But what you're looking for is interline agreements. So on American and United have interline agreements. Delta's the one that's like, no, we're better than you are. And unfortunately, they've been proven wrong. Well, okay, but what I was talking about is, do you remember when, you know, there were these airlines, you know, they were leaving people on the tarmac for extended periods Mm -hmm. of time. This even happened, this this continues to happen. And there was an outcry and there was a, a sort of call to Congress, I suppose, to form some kind of air passengers bill of rights to prevent that kind of thing. I don't know if it ever went anywhere. I don't know if there's like a complete document, but I mean, the DOT sets those rules, right? So in terms of you can't be on a tarmac for three hours, whatever, without getting reimbursed. That's something that applies to all domestic carriers that sign up to this agreement. So it may not be called that, but there is a sort of set of regulations around how passengers can and how those things get remediated if they are violated. Right. And that'll be on the certain airlines webpage. That'll be under their contracts of carriage because that is part of the FAA agreement. Right. So they'll tell you individually, American Airlines, these are our rules, which are all consistent across the board. And then here's who you contact from American. It's not like you're going to contact some government official for that because each airline manages that independently but the standards of those government regulations are set i mean there are rights like you said about being stuck on the tarmac but there are also like rights you have when you get you know involuntarily bumped off a flight because of overbooking like those are things that the dot has kind of regulations about Mm -hmm. but not necessarily about other than like being honest in your flight places there's nothing that really stands out does the i mean i feel like this the answer to this is probably no and it's probably not going to be anything but no for the next period of time but i feel like with the unbundling eventually there's going to have to be you know if you're getting into remediation if you're getting into transparency and pricing at some point that's going to have to touch on these issues right because airlines can find ways or might look for ways be incentivized to look for ways to hide this sort of thing But I guess that's not going anywhere for the next whatever. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. I mean, if you're going to book with a budget carrier and you see a price that's too good to be true, it probably is. Like the fine print that they've got layered in there about your rights, it's hard to distill, but read it carefully um, because a lot of times you don't have a lot of recourse when you think you might. They don't have the same, you know, standards for reimbursement necessarily or proof of reimbursement that other major carriers do have. And I think the biggest thing to take away from this is just that you need to be paying attention when you're buying a flight. If it sounds too good to be true, read the fine print. If it looks really good and you're not sure, just double check and read the fine print. I mean, there's no harm in taking the time to try to read the legalese. I've also found that, you know, if I have a question, getting on the phone with someone helps getting on the phone with someone from the airline, talking through a ticket price, talking through my route, that has actually proven to be effective in this day and age where we don't like to get on the phone. We like to do everything behind a screen. Do you feel like the phone people are less busy these days because everybody's (laughs) doing everything online? I don't know. I've been able to reach them quicker, maybe. 
I've heard people have success with tweeting them as well. Tweeting yeah, I found tweeting for, you know, if you have a complaint have an to an issue, airline, you have a for problem. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or something you want to talk about. If we were going to give people a sort of checklist, a set of steps to walk through to find the right flight, what would be step number one? Where do you guys start? I would say start when Mark was saying that at six months out, everything looks pretty consistent. Double check that price on Google Flights or on directly from the airline. Just know kind of what the fluctuation might be so that you will know maybe not what's the cheapest day because that doesn't exist and you won't be able to track it, but know like what your threshold is already yeah, so that when budget. you set your budget, it's logical and it's not looking for the 199 flight to LA. So I would just start by doing a little bit of research. You don't have to sit on the computer for hours, but just double check and see what flights are usually like around the time that you want to buy it. And so. then what comes next? Set your reminder. Set your set your flight set, tracker. Set yeah. your flight tracker. Mm -hmm. Agree on your price, right? Decide right. on your price. Price right. range, we'll say. And then put that into your flight tracker and honestly wait. And if it three months yeah. or like, you know, two and a half months out, you haven't gotten anything from your flight tracker, it's honestly probably in your best interest to just, just buy, buy the flight. Yeah. And that's it. And that's it. All right. Yeah. I mean, at some stage in the game, you can say, okay, these are the variables. Um, you know, I might consider a low-cost airline. I might consider an airport sort of outside of the city, what we talked about before. But I think those steps are pretty clear. I think one of the biggest questions we get is, when's the best time to buy an airline ticket? And that changes so often. But this is more about how to get the right ticket. Right? It's more of a process yeah. than, a, than, a, exactly. than a thing. Exactly, than a certain day where yeah. there's a yeah. magic day. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you think about it kind of as a process and not as an exact science, you're going to come out with a better price than if you were trying to find the exact cent amount that mm -hmm. you wanted. And I think we're saying, too, that there is no answer to that because it depends on where you're going. It depends on when you're going there. It depends on where you're flying, which airport you're flying from. And yeah. kind of what you expect out of your flight. If you're happy with limited you know, leg room and you're okay with paying for a bag or you're just bringing a carry-on, then maybe the low-cost airline is right for you, but it's not obviously right for everyone. Okay, no secret weapons. You guys, I, I'm kind of disappointed. I, I want the secret weapon. I think weapon. you just kind of have to pay attention. Yeah. I think that's this the secret feels very weapon. old school to me. I want... <laughs> I want... But I, I want think like, secret you know, weapon. But I think like using something like Google Flights, with, which just came out with its and own we'll flight tracker and Hopper. Your prices um, are going to expire. Same with Hopper. It'll, right. Yeah. You like at least are more educated to be able to make the right choice than you were maybe even two years ago. Do you guys ever buy the insurance that holds your price for a week or, you know, three days or whatever? I do. On American, I've done that. Um, I think it's like for two days or maybe they have it. American they have might variable. be the 24-hour one. But, yeah, yeah, I have done that. Yeah. Because your plans are not quite together or whatever or you're still doing more research. Yeah, I have done that. Good. And I have not because I feel like when I buy a flight, I know I want to be there on a certain day and I go for it. Hmm. That's admirable. Thank you. <laughs> you're admirable, man. <Mara. laughs> Okay, so don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com. We do have flight deals every day, but don't be deceived because uh, they, they aren't necessarily the best price for you. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube. We're at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us, send us feedback, review us on iTunes. Meredith, where can people reach you? 
Um, you can find me on Twitter at oh hey there mayor, and I would just like to give a shout out because I think next week is going to be particularly interesting if you tune in to the podcast. Are you not no, going to tell? No, no. <laughs> You're not going to say why. You have to listen. You just have to. Not going to say. Yeah, you got to tune in. Okay, it's going to be an information rich podcast. Yes. Okay. Good. Catherine and I'm on Twitter at KJ Lagrave L A G R A V E. I'm going to do Mark because Mark had to leave. He's at Mark J Elwood, E L L W O O D. I don't think that's what he says, but I think that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Sorry for the lack of British accent. Uh, I'm at Brad Rick. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>